Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Moray Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show, we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 102.5 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com slash 2022 and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. I should note that my TV show is now available to watch on many PBS affiliates, and you can also stream it. Go to pbs.org or the PBS app on your smart TV and begin to search for Matt Asher, all one word, and you should see it pop up. This show is going to be a kind of follow-up episode to my interview with Aubrey de Grey. He is one of the chief proponents of life extension. And if you want to check out that show, it's episode 38. If you're looking at the podcast feed, Aubrey is doing work in the field of life extension and is hoping that we can reach something like an escape velocity where people become immortal and essentially they are able to live for as long as nothing kills them. And That's kind of a joke in that, of course, we all live until something kills us. But in this case, what we're talking about is we have a situation where we have cured all of the known diseases and we have ways to rejuvenate in terms of our basic health at a cellular level. And the only thing that can kill us is some kind of accident, like getting run over by a bus. Aubrey is one of the main workers in this field, but not the only one. I happened to get a chance to speak to him right after he had raised many, many millions of dollars for his work. He's not the only one who is controlling a big budget, looking for ways for humans to extend their lives out forever. This is something that a handful of billionaires, and perhaps all of them, are interested in, a handful publicly at least, are very much dedicated to this. And of course, if you had all kinds of money, certainly something you would want to do with that is see if you can use it to, well, to just keep living and living and living, and of course, enhancing your quality of life along the way so that you are not just living to a very, very ripe old age, but doing so in style with a good, nice, healthy body. At any rate, this is not a not a fringe thing. And my understanding is that some progress is being made on this front, that bit by bit we are chipping away at the at, at, at the frontiers of this. And the idea of escape velocity would be that you would be able to uh, to, to extend someone's life up until the point where uh, they are able to find a cure for that particular disease or ailment, and you just keep going on and on. So you have some kind of new condition, but by that time, by the time that comes around, we have collectively figured out some way to overcome it. It was an interesting conversation with uh, with Aubrey. I I saw some significant downsides to 
society if people live forever there's some things in my view that could go wrong that could turn our society toxic we discussed these though Aubrey mostly I think it's fair to say completely dismissed those he said he had heard them before he did not take them seriously I'm doing a solo show here so I am going to be giving a more in-depth take on why I think the idea of people living forever could be so dangerous to us as a species and create a, a dystopia for sure. But to be fair, since Aubrey is not here with me on this episode and I don't have anyone else to represent that side, I'll do my best to to uh, characterize the counter arguments as accurately as I can to steel man them and go from there. And of course, you're welcome to write back to me with what you think I got wrong in my thinking. Of course, there won't be anything wrong with it. One reason to do this is that it is, I believe, on the way. I don't think that we actually can opt out of dealing with the societal consequences of longer and longer and maybe even eventually quasi-immortal lifespans for human beings. This is going to happen unless we end up with some kind of a mass destruction event, which certainly I hope we do not, or we all decide to become Amish, which might not be the worst of all possible uh, options as far as for our future. So what does it look like if we extend life for another 100, 200, 400 years and, as I say, as healthy individuals, not just, not just shriveled little people sitting in their chairs in a retirement home and watching Matlock? What are the implications of this? Well, the, the first one is that you're not going to have intergenerational transfer of wealth. You may have a trickling down of money to, to descendants of someone, especially if someone is wealthy. They can take some piece of their fortune and give it away to their children and their children's children without doing any damage to their quality of life and also depending on where we're at in the life extension game, they may still have a comfortable margin to continue to perpetuate themselves and solve any uh, problems with disease that come up. So things, things are not trickling down to other generations. They're being held within one single person for the most part. And note that as of right now, we have some highly competent people with a lot of money. We have our, our Bezoses, our Gates, and our Elon Musks, and a number of other people. Those are mostly the sort of the highest profile billionaires. And all of them say what you will about their, their goodness, their morality. And I, I will be talking about that issue here before too long. But setting that aside, I think that everyone uh, should certainly agree that they are they're highly competent, that they're highly effective at growing a company and generating wealth, both for themselves and for the shareholders of their company. They have a extremely uh, attractive track records, all of them. So, and that, in and of itself, actually looks good for the U.S. economy. It looks like a win, having people who are able to build up these 
amazing. And I think that, what, again, whatever you think about Amazon as a player in the marketplace, it has done amazing things in terms of supply chains and making available an extraordinary number of goods to an extraordinary number of people, often with very, uh, very short lags between the time it goes out to the time it gets to you. That's that's impressive. It's a win, certainly for consumers and certainly in the short run. But what happens if we have a situation where instead of handing over wealth after building up that company or as some of uh, these billionaires are said to be doing, giving most of it away to charity. And uh, again, there might be some, you know, some second guessing whether the particular ways in which they're using charity are really all that charitable or all that beneficial to society. But nonetheless, over time, these billionaires, given that they have a sense of their own impending doom, are going to be dispersing that wealth, and then eventually they die, and that money goes to their other, uh, to their descendants or other people. There's a, a famous saying, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, meaning essentially that in one generation, a person might be able to build up incredible wealth, and then in that second generation, the, the children of these very wealthy people often squander that wealth. And then by the third generation, you are back to being something like working class. This is a cautionary tale, but at the same time, it's also something of a, something of a win for society at large in that you don't have single families, you, not that many anyway, that are able to maintain wealth and power over many, many, many generations, meaning that others are able to step in. And this is where we have to deal with one of those issues as far as understanding that wealth is not a zero-sum game. The fact that some people are rich does not inherently keep me from becoming rich. But at the same time, when people have a lot of money and when companies have a lot of money, one of the things that they tend to do with that large amount of money is, well, they engage in two behaviors. They spend money to protect what they have, and then they also spend money on rent-seeking. And I'm going to go into both of those. Protective uh, spending might look something like what Facebook does in terms of buying up competitors. So they have an extraordinarily strong presence in the marketplace with Facebook itself. I guess they, the company itself is now called Meta, and uh, certainly the, the whole Meta thing is very interesting, something that I have uh, spoken about actually extensively on my Substack. And a reminder for those who do not know, I publish more or less weekly posts to Substack at mattasher.substack.com. I think there's some really interesting stuff there, including a deep dive into Meta and the Metaverse, the project by the company formerly known as Facebook. But getting back to that idea of using money defensively, Facebook does still have an enormous market share, but one of the smartest things they did, however many years ago it was now, maybe seven or eight, was snap up Instagram, which was the new hotness and is still extraordinarily popular among younger people. 
it was the social network when my daughter was in her mid-teens about three years ago. So that's one of the things they can do to protect themselves with money, just buy out the competition. There are other things they can do within the marketplace. I'm going to talk, though, now about the second one I mentioned, which was rent-seeking. This is using their economic power to lobby for perks. Those could be direct subsidies. There are a lot of industries that get those. Farmers actually get a, a, a huge amount of subsidies. Automakers have gotten subsidies over the years. Really, any company that uh, achieves a certain amount of size and can make the case that it is somehow invaluable can get a lot of subsidies. That, that would be rent-seeking behavior, as would be the kinds of contracts that some of these big companies get just because they are big companies. Amazon is at this point to some extent a quasi-governmental power. They not only have the market power, but they do a huge amount of contracting for the government. And as with all contracting, it comes with strings. So the point at which Amazon ends and the government begins is... Well, it's, it's a debatable question. Another major form of rent-seeking is looking to get the government to create regulations that benefit that particular company. There is a, a kind of half-truth that big business doesn't like regulations. They don't like every regulation, but what happens with those big companies is that when the government comes in and it wants to regulate, and often the government will do this as a way of generating lobbying money because as soon as they turn their sights on a particular industry, they will inevitably encourage that industry to lobby them in order to get a lighter touch from regulators or even more than that, to get regulations that are crafted in a way that really benefits them or perhaps hurts them but only in a minor way, whereas it might hurt future competitors in a much bigger way. How does that work? Well, let's say that you are the government and you're going to try to regulate a complicated industry like banking. Well, first of all, you can't do that in just completely on your own. You're going to need domain experts. You're going to need bankers on your regulatory committees and and to help you craft legislation that is going to try to, say, control that industry. So they, those people will be consulted. They will have a hand in writing that legislation. And as I say, even if this is something that has a cost to this particular big business, it might have a much higher cost to a smaller business that is starting out. This is why some of these regulations are sometimes uh, smaller businesses are exempted from them in a, in a nod towards sanity. But if that happens, you still get a situation where you have some kind of a cliff where a company gets to a certain size, and then if it wants to grow beyond that size, it's going to have to implement a set of policies to be in compliance with regulations. And get setting up that kind of a compliance department within the company, that's going to be a fairly large fixed cost going forward. The biggest companies can handle that kind of fixed cost because they just have the volume and their company is already large and complex and it's not as big a deal to conform to these additional regulations. But 
the additional regulations for a small to mid-sized company could be a really big hurdle. So once these regulations are in place, this, this eliminates competition for the bigger companies, which is why you end up with situations where Facebook, or I keep saying Facebook, Meta's uh, CEO uh, at the time, Zuckerberg, said to Congress essentially, hey, let's just regulate us. Uh, the uh, referring to the social media industry, saying that confident, knowing that the regulations that came down the pike would be ones that Facebook could live with, but perhaps smaller social media upstarts couldn't. You might be wondering at this point why a show about human beings potentially living indefinite lifespans has me talking about companies so much. One of the main reasons is that a lot of our largest companies right now are actually bound up with individuals. Amazon is Jeff Bezos. Tesla is Elon Musk. Microsoft was, for a very long time, Bill Gates. Separating the company and the individual, especially when that individual holds a large share in that company, is, isn't something that you can do cleanly. The other connection here is that as lifespans grow longer and longer and you have a group of people who are highly wealthy and bound up with that company, then that person's life itself starts to look more in terms of its trajectory like the life of a company in that you don't have that churn that comes with passing things off. I mentioned this already in terms of the idea that you would go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations because wealth gets diluted and it gets squandered. I want to make an even stronger point about that, which is that when it comes to something like this, passing off wealth to one generation to the next, you are really almost guaranteed that at some point, some branch of that family is going to go bankrupt. There is a, a concept in gambling called gambler's ruin, which is the idea that if you are doing a game of chance and you just keep betting and betting and betting, well, if you're betting against the house especially, the, the house always wins in the long run. So no matter how big your pot is to, uh, to gamble with, eventually you're going to go broke. And this actually applies even if you have an advantage in the odds, unless you are structuring your bets in a proper way. So for example, you might have a, a small edge at the casino under certain circumstances, but if you put your entire wealth in the pot when you have, say, 60 to 40 odds to win versus lose, well, there's still that 40% chance that you're going to lose everything. And if you keep doing that, trying to increase your bets in that, your amount in that way, you will, as I say, even if you have a net advantage, you're going to go broke. So certainly generation after generation, as you get a kind of regression to the mean in terms of the competence and intelligence of your offspring, sooner or later, someone is going to make a really bad mistake with that amount of wealth, and it's all going to go away. Whereas if you have a single person running a company and that person's life is like the life of a company, then you no longer have that handoff. You no longer have 
the movement of the company from someone who is highly competent to someone who may not be so competent and children who may be much more spendthrift and less focused on accumulating more and more wealth. And they may be less focused on playing the long game. And when we pick back up, I will be talking about exactly that idea of playing the long game and how it applies in that context. You are listening to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk 96.9 and 1025. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk 96.9 and 102.5. Today in this solo show, I am talking about a conversation I had with Aubrey de Grey, one of the most interesting figures in the field of life extension, someone who is gunning for the ability for human beings to live forever. And I was making the case for how It's not necessarily a good thing for society at large if people begin to live these kinds of indefinite lives. And right before we left off, I was talking about the idea of playing the long game. You may have heard of the marshmallow test. This is one of the most famous psychological experiments where you have a small child and you put him in a room with a single marshmallow in front of him or her, and then the experimenter says that he is going to go away, and if he comes back and that marshmallow is still there, if the child has not eaten that marshmallow, then the experimenter will give the child two marshmallows. It is, well, it's a somewhat controversial experiment, and I have my own thoughts about some of the problems with it in terms of what's really being tested there, whether it is a child's ability to sustain discomfort for a greater reward, the discomfort of staring at that luscious, sweet, chewy marshmallow and not just grabbing it and stuffing it in your face. Maybe you are instead getting at a test of, say, how much they trust the experimenter, or maybe the kid just prefers one marshmallow now over two later, and that's and they don't even want the second one, right? But it is, in some sense, a proxy or a good way to think about the idea of playing the long game and one's willingness to tolerate short-term pain for long-term gain. That is, at the individual level and to some extent at the societal level, one of the healthiest things that you can have is people who are playing that long game, who have what is called a a low time preference, that is to say that they are willing to wait for their rewards. Certainly the opposite of that, where you have someone who is hungry and instead of going around to restaurants and trying to get a job washing dishes in exchange for some food or money for the short term, if instead of that they go and they steal a loaf of bread, 
that's a net negative probably for them because sooner or later engaging in those behaviors, they're going to get caught, thrown in jail, perhaps, although there are certain states in America that are experimenting with not criminalizing those kinds of low-level thefts. That would be an entirely different discussion about the societal effects of that. But uh, certainly the societal effects of people who are willing to set aside the need to consume immediately everything they have and instead play this long game, even if it's uncomfortable, that is what results in sometimes extraordinary concentrations of wealth and extraordinarily successful companies. Amazon itself is testament to this. It spent a long number of years, I think well over a decade, without turning a net profit. To, to do that, you need a lot of patience. Your investors also need a lot of patience to not be banging on your door every day saying, where's my return, where's my return, where's my return? Amazon played the long game, reinvested huge, uh, huge portion of its revenue in infrastructure, in that supply chain stuff, warehouses, delivery mechanisms, and the rest, and that has paid huge dividends. He didn't get to be the richest man on earth by immediately cashing out his shares and buying a small yacht. He now has enough to buy any size yacht that he wants. At the societal level, though, you have to wonder at what point is playing the long game actually a, a net negative for society, and how could it possibly be? Well, imagine that you have someone who has a time preference that is much, much longer than even Bezos, someone who is willing to wait not just 15, 20 years, for the amount of wealth to uh, to accumulate and to grow his company while sacrificing the short-term game of pulling out profits, but someone who is willing to wait 50 years or 100 years. What if doing that allows that individual, that kind of uh, Jeff Bezos on steroids, to accumulate 10 times or 100 times the amount of wealth that Jeff Bezos has? It's already the case that someone like this has as much wealth as a lot of small countries, but what happens when you have an individual or a small family of people who now have as much wealth as a mid-sized country or even a large company? Well, you now have individuals who are bound together with companies who are at the level of state actors. They have the power economically and if they are engaging in rent-seeking and, let's just say, marketplace bullying of some kind or another, like buying up of competitors or threatening to bury that competitor if they don't sell out, that's a huge amount of power. You get into a position where you could see the return of something akin to company towns and for those who don't know about company towns, it was often the case in the development of the United States, especially as people were moving out west and doing mining and going to factories in remote locations that the company itself would provide for many of the things that the workers needed in this remote location that didn't yet have much infrastructure. They would provide housing because there might not be housing in existence there or because it was just uh, convenient both for the workers and the companies to have them nearby. And they would provide these stores where the 
workers would uh, buy their stuff. Some of the company towns went so far as to pay their workers in script, which could only be directly converted into goods at the company store. So people would get locked in to a life with this company and then often they would actually end up in debt to that company and not be able to disengage even if they wanted to. There is some debate about the extent to which company towns were predatory, but they certainly had a lot of power over the lives of their workers, both for for good sometimes and certainly for bad as well. You actually do see something like company towns with what we have right now on the internet. I think it's fair to say that to some extent right now all roads lead through Facebook slash Meta. You have not just the billion people who visit that website every day directly, but Facebook has embeds all over the place on other websites that track you there, as does as does Google. Google is the starting place for a huge number of people's online activities in the form of the search. People also search for URLs, which is a kind of pet peeve of mine. There is a URL bar there for URLs. You can type in the full URL instead of Googling Amazon. But setting that aside, that is the behavior that a lot of people have. And so, of course, Google sees exactly what you're searching for and then exactly what you click on and land on. And they have a really, actually quite a good suite for doing analytics that a lot of websites use in order to track their visitors. I full disclosure, have that on one of my own websites. So I am part of the infrastructure that is allowing Google to see what happens not just on its own websites and through both Google and YouTube, they have a already a huge amount of the overall marketplace of website visiting, but then through their web analytics trackers that a huge number of other website uh, owners use, they get a view into really a very large proportion of what everybody is doing online. This makes them, maybe more so in the case of something like Facebook, a gated, a walled garden where almost everything you do is within their confines in one way or another, or maybe more like they are a panopticon of sorts and everything you do can be seen by them no matter where you go on the internet. Either way, the uh, analogy here I think is apt in that you have a situation where you have companies that have a, a high degree of control and watchfulness over a huge segment of the population. But now let's move that from the context of a company, which even a strong one, generally there tends to be a life cycle for a company where there's a, a time when it does very well and then a time when it doesn't do so well. And actually a lot of that has to do with who is in charge of that company and handoff. So you have with companies the same kind of problem that you have in terms of maintaining intergenerational wealth. Sooner or later you get a CEO who sucks but we're talking about a situation here where you have CEOs who might reign not just for 20 years or 40 years, but what about 400 years? What happens in that time period? What happens with that person who, as I say, has a very low time preference and is willing to 
accumulate very slowly wealth and get to the point where they have 10 times what Amazon does. What does that look like for society? And to what extent are they able to completely dominate the marketplace? And what does that look like in terms of incentives at the individual level? One of the interesting political considerations in terms of your time preference is to what extent you are willing to play the long game in terms of hearts and minds. And here the situation is somewhat complicated. The left has famously been very successful at playing the long game in their long march through the institutions and their low time preference for very slowly gobbling up one aspect of American society after another from journalism to academia to government, something like 95% of the bureaucracy votes Democrat. That's been highly successful to them. What happens, though, in a context where you have a player who has already succeeded to a high degree at a, at a game that was a, a long game that they played to the other players, can they do the same thing? Can they also play the long game? And the answer to that is, is not necessarily. It may be that the opponent that you are up against has a level of power where if you try to play a long game of hearts and minds and publishing dissident literature about how the current situation is terrible, well, you just might find yourself in the gulag and your long game is ends with you. And one of the things I think about in terms of what are the implications of people living these longer and longer lives is, well, what do I do? What is the game theoretic implications of this and how does it impact me and my own behavior as a proxy for the, w the kinds of ways that many other people would uh, react and then take into account that a lot of them are much more ambitious than I am or less ambitious, much more evil than I am and perhaps much less evil than I am. But what does that look like? What does the dynamic look like when I'm going to be competing against other people who are going to be playing a very long game or can play a very long game and generate vast amounts of wealth, which they then use to consolidate even more wealth and more power? One way to look at that kind of a scenario might be, well, here's one of my favorite jokes. You have a couple of people out hiking in the woods and they see a bear that starts charging towards them and one of the two guys bends over and begins to tie his shoelaces and the guy next to him, the other hiker, says, dude, what are you doing? There's no way we can outrun this bear. And the guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. So one way to look at this kind of a situation would be that I don't necessarily need to accumulate enough wealth and power to dethrone uh, Bezos. That's certainly not going to happen. I just need to, over time, generate enough of it so that by the time they begin to consolidate their power, they are going after people who are much weaker economically than I am, and I have some level of protection with that. I'm able to enter at some entry level of the elites and use that to protect myself. Certainly, I would be putting a lot of focus on doing that if I knew that I was going to be living for hundreds and hundreds of years. That would be of utmost importance. And I would also be very concerned that the bear, as in that joke, wasn't going to immediately come after me after taking out that other hiker. And that, of course, is a, a 
realistic possibility. In fact, I think there is a very high level of probability that what you might end up with if time goes on and on and on and people keep accumulating more and more wealth is that you have a group of elites who are in some kind of stalemate with each other, but ruling in essentially an absolutely dominant way where they are a true oligarchy and they have as much power as the church or kings did in the Middle Ages and they use their power to make sure that everybody else is essentially a serf who is serving their needs. When we come back, I'm going to be talking about the benefits, at least at the individual level, of living for a very, very long time. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show on Keys Talk FM. I am talking today about the idea of living forever and what might be some of the complications for society if you had a group of people who just kept living and living and living and the dynamics of that at the social level. I want to talk, though, at the personal level, what does it look like if you just don't die? There's an old saying that youth is wasted on the young, the idea being that if only you were able to have the knowledge that you have now, the sophistication of mind, but in the young body that had all of that energy and vigor and optimism too, let's be honest, you could really enjoy youth and take full advantage of it to conquer worlds. I would imagine that if you are certainly like me, that you've had at least some moment of fantasizing about what that would be like to go back in time and have your younger self, but with the knowledge that you have now. If people are able to live longer and longer amounts of time, especially if they're able to do so with bodies and minds that are still relatively agile and robust, then that's essentially what you've got. You've got a group of people who have both youth and wisdom at the same time. That's a dangerous combination. One of the interesting things you see in the literature about monsters, about vampires, is that a lot of their power comes not just through whatever kind of superpowers they have physically or ability to turn into bats or whatever, but also from the fact that they've just been around for a really long time and they have seen all kinds of human dynamics play out. They have a kind of crystal ball into the future in terms of the kinds of things that might happen. They understand human psychology at a very deep level. They've been through cycle after cycle of things happening, and that gives them a huge advantage. Just think about the kinds of knowledge you'd have after 400 years in terms of how you might want to go about interacting with other human beings or building up your company or wealth. You have a, a huge degree of disequality between you and anybody else who is coming around. One of the interesting things about the late Middle Ages and then the 
the plague in particular was that you had a situation where so many people were dying so quickly that this created actually a lot of opportunity for other people. The people who had entrenched themselves with power, well, a lot of them died. They went away. Uh, any knowledge that they had gained in their in their long 40-year life back then disappeared. It died with them, and new people were able to come along as an interesting thought experiment. You might consider what would happen if you had a, an animal like octopus that are extraordinarily clever and have a high degree of intelligence and the ability to learn, and instead of living for two years, they were able to live for 200 years, and then were also a social creature that was able to interact and collaborate with other octopus. I don't think there's any doubt that they would have been able to build a civilization under the sea, and maybe also outside of the sea, that was the rival of anything that human beings can do. What allows for that kind of dominance is the ability to accumulate that knowledge and to not just have it disappear when that particular individual dies, along with, as I say, the social component and interaction that octopus don't have, but humans do. And so what does it look like when you have a group of people who are able to accumulate this kind of knowledge and then it just doesn't go away? Do they make room for the next generation? I think the answer to that is probably some of them do. Probably some of them are are good-hearted and understand that it's a good thing if they either get out of the way or allow others to gain some amount of power and autonomy over their lives. There will certainly be those people, but then there will also be people who are playing this this game, this long game, to win, and they won't be interested in sharing wisdom except to further their own power. These will be the kind of people who treat immortality a little bit like it's the ring in Lord of the Rings, and they are Gollum. They will hoard it and consider it my precious and not want to give it up. And just like Gollum, they will do anything and everything they can to maintain control over that ring. The people who will be the group of elites who lives forever are likely to be selected from the people who are willing to be the most ruthless and aggressive in in going after that. The case I'm making here is that what you've got is a selection towards the people who are bad people and who, once they have power, are going to try to extend that power and use their ever-increasing wisdom to hoard it and not give it over to any new generations. And so anyone who is born, let's just say 400 years from now, assuming that we achieve escape velocity sometime in the next 30 to 50 years, well, they will be born into a world in which you have seen people live for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the people who will rule will almost certainly be those people who have spent their lifetimes dedicating themselves to becoming rulers, to gaining enough wealth and power and wisdom in order to do whatever they want and protect themselves because, again, we have to think about this from a game theoretic point of view. They will be thinking, well, if even if I am not myself, 
extraordinarily interested in accumulating huge amounts of wealth and power. Someone else will be, and so I had better do it, at least from a protect myself point of view. You have something like an arms race that happens, and if one of the countries has nuclear arms, well, certainly many of the other ones are going to want those arms too. This could end up being a fairly toxic dynamic. I don't want to leave this on a negative note, even though I do see lots of ways that we can end up with a dystopia if people begin to become effectively immortal. So let's just talk a little bit about what might be done about this and how things could be, let's just say, kept under control so that we might have nearly infinite life extension that is somehow also compatible with good societies where opportunities still exist for new people born into that society, even if they're not the uh, sons or daughters of these oligarchs. How can we keep that open? And as much as I want to be positive about this, I think that that's going to be a tricky thing to achieve. I mentioned at the beginning the idea of becoming Amish. That was something of a glib throwaway mention, but it, it was also serious to some extent in that human beings could decide that they are going to de-escalate this arms race and that they're going to try to stay small. This is one of the key ideas in the Amish community is that if your company gets too big, you are expected to break it up. You are expected to be the person who breaks up your own AT&T into little baby bells. This also applies to accumulations of wealth at an interpersonal level and so on. Small is, is beautiful, and, and this is beyond just the self-limiting of technological advancement that also goes on in that community. But I don't think it's all that realistic that at a large enough scale, people will opt for a kind of Amish way of life. I do see a move towards the kind of decentralization that you see in those communities, and that might begin to take hold. But you might have individual points that continue to move forward with the quest of immortality. And so now you're back at that same problem. How do you prevent those particular points from taking over and end up with the scenario, the nightmare scenario that I have been describing here. I guess another option would be to have a whole bunch of Unabombers going around scaring people out of doing work on life extension. I don't think that's a good idea. I, and I don't even think it would succeed even if it was a good idea. Certainly it's a very violent way to go though who knows what kind of violence awaits us in a world of people who are living forever. That's an unknown. But I don't think that taking out scientists is going to work either. Is there some way to control what they're working on? I'm not sure about that either. Right now, there is a lot of research that happens within the context of universities, and that is something that governments have some level of oversight over, though I would never expect the government to be the savior of, uh, of anything, really. So who and what can save us? Well, I think that one thing that might save us as we do move in the direction of immortality is if people decide that they're willing to forego some level of comfort and convenience in exchange for patronizing smaller companies. And 
do things that makes it so that people like Bezos are incapable of achieving huge levels of wealth and exchanging that wealth for political power and engaging in rent-seeking. Certainly it would go a long way if we had a government that wasn't openly inviting of efforts to rent-seek in the form of happily taking lobbying dollars in exchange for writing regulations that help out these big businesses. That's a whole nother question about how you'd go about restructuring the government, how it, in any way you might get to a place where it is restructured so that you don't have such a tight connection between big business and the government that is literally what fascism is. So that's a, a big problem, though perhaps not completely unsolvable. What might be more workable is simply that people spend more money locally and they move money away from the people who are accumulating it at these huge rates and using it, weaponizing it, and will, of course, continue to do so as they live longer and longer lives. There may be some ways in which pressure can be put on people like this to diminish their own level of wealth. It also could be that we could have cultural norms that develop that consider certain behaviors toxic and that stigmatize to a degree that makes it unacceptable for these people who are both power-hungry and very wise and very competent to use their ever-growing wealth and wisdom as a way of insulating themselves from natural market pressures or preventing other competitors from coming along. We could see that. In fact, actually, that is my biggest hope, is that the culture itself turns away from and delegitimizes people who are seeking to accumulate these ever larger fortunes and who will have the possibility, potentially, to keep doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Maybe at some point those people's behaviors become so stigmatized, frowned upon, and those people get so yelled at and chastised and hated that they back down from that and they decide to pursue a different path that isn't just ratcheting up their power and control. What are the realistic chances that this happens? Who knows? Yeah.